Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Vell News Magazine, joined today by Spencer Paulison, News Director. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Fred. Uh, Spencer, I'm not going to lie to you. I started my regular cycling this past week, and no, I've not been riding outside because it's been cold and snowy. I ventured back into the spin class studio. You are probably envisioning me sweaty on a spin bike, just out of the saddle, in the saddle, out of the saddle. I figured you'd be a soul cycle guy. I've, I've done soul cycle okay. before. There you go. Did well, not enjoy it. Good for you. Staying, uh, staying in shape. I just go to the local gym where um, some maniac screams at me and tells me to go faster. Nice. Yeah. It's good motivation. Uh, guys, we have a great episode of the podcast this week. We are talking all about uh, a story that has been lighting up the airwaves on VeloNews.com. Kind of a different story for us. This is the story of Performance Bicycle, the nationwide retailer and e-commerce mega giant that filed for, well, its parent company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy earlier this year. And over the last few weeks and months, it has been closing stores. There's been a saga involving the purchase of its assets. And it's just sort of a cultural touchstone because my guess is that many, many listeners have spent time in a performance bicycle. Spencer, any any quick performance bike memories? Well, I remember, I remember getting the performance bicycle catalog. Yep the printed catalog back when I was in middle school or something like that, when I was first starting to get into mountain biking and just like just flipping through those pages until they were dog-eared and torn and worn out because that was my window into the world of cycling because I just lived out in some little rural hamlet in Vermont and I didn't really have a local bike shop of any sort. That was all I had. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that's going to be a separate episode of Maybe. Young Spencer. Could be, yeah. Talking about living in the woods. Yeah, for me, uh, performance played a very important role in my collegiate cycling days because I was a penniless college kid and just looking at all the cool Nash Bar stuff discounted mm-hmm. on that. Uh, performance bike. It was just great. Anyway, to educate us and further our discussion on this topic, I am so, so pleased to be joined today by Steve Frothingham. Steve is the editor-in-chief of Bicycle Retailer and Industry News. It is the industry hot sheets, bike industry hot sheets uh, around all things bike industry. Steve, you are, you, we just welcomed you into the uh, the media family here as our parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, recently brought Brain into the fold. Steve, you're working in the office with us. It's great. I know. I'm right here with the with the cool kids at the cool kid table. Pretty excited. Wait, where are the cool kids? Uh, are you cool? Yeah, I don't know. I, well, I said it was a table. Yeah, yeah pretty so. low standard, Steve. Yeah. Jeez. Decidedly cool kids? not oh, cool. God. <laughs> uh, well, Steve, I thought I figured a good place to start off is, um, you know, anytime there are stories involving bankruptcy and corporate mergers, it can get a little technical and confusing. So if you were to explain to your nephew, and and in this scenario, I am your nephew. uh, A large man child. (laughs) A large man child who needs a very basic explanation of why Performance Bicycle is going away. Uh, Let's hear it. Let's have your your explanation. My uh, real nephew is 31 years old and has a business degree, so he would be explaining this to me, I think. But um, uh, Performance Bicycle dates back, uh, I think, over 30 years or close to 30 years. They had 104 locations and over 1,700 employees until just this last year. Uh, and uh, it depends on which story you believe, on which, on why they went under 
Um, some people would say the way that the company was structured, it was overloaded with debt. Other people, I think, would just put it in the context of other brick-and-mortar retailers that are dropping like flies out there, whether it's Sports Authority or Sears or Toys R Us or Gymboree or Radio Shack. There's a long list of uh, brick-and-mortar retailers that have gone under. But, uh, of course, Performance was not just a brick-and-mortar retailer. In addition to their stores, they had an uh, ongoing e-commerce business uh, that used to be a catalog business back in the day. They also owned Bike Nash Bar, which um, was a, uh, a mail-order e-commerce business. And their sister company was ASI, which is the distributor and owner of some pretty well-known bike brands, including Fuji, Kestrel, Breezer, SE Racing, the BMX brand. Um, Oval Concept, which is a wheel and component brand. So it was a big organization, and exactly what brought it down is uh, a little bit unclear. Depends on who you uh, believe. But it's worth noting that what came out of this after all the bankruptcy and after new owners came in and bought up the scraps, uh, Fuji's going to continue. ASI will continue with the other bike brands that I just mentioned. Uh, the performance e-commerce business will continue. The bike Nash bar e-commerce business will continue. But the 104 performance bike stores around the country are expected to all be closed by March 2nd and will not reopen. So as a quick timeline, this story uh, begins basically 2016 when ASI purchases performance and creates a spinoff company, ASE, which is a, a joint company, ASE. Very confusingly named. Could they not have come up with something a little more different? I yeah. mean, come on. And at the time... At they the, all sound like knee surgeries, too. Yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah, well, it'll be great to see the Broncos get their quarterback back after that ASI surgery. Oh, brutal case of ASI. <laughs> uh, at the time, this purchase was lauded in the pages of Brain, and we had um, executives from ASI and Performance saying that it was a really good deal and that it was going to further vertically integrate performance because performance sold these bike brands. And so the thought was that, okay, if the parent company of the retailer and the bike brands owns everything, then you are creating this very streamlined pathway from manufacturer to brand to brick and mortar or e-commerce and, and on to the customer. I guess the interesting thing to me was that two years later at the bankruptcy hearing, we started hearing quotes from some of these executives saying um, that all actually was not fine upon the purchase, that actually um, this purchase was done heavily uh, with debt and that um, when the purchase was completed, uh, performance and ASE had these huge debt obligations that required to, you know, to make you know, pretty, pretty sizable payments. Um, I don't know. that Steve, did that strike you as weird? You know, this news coming out upon the Chapter 11 bankruptcy declaration that uh, was like, oh, actually, no, we actually just loaded this thing up with debt. Right. I need to go back in the stories and look at what they were saying in uh, 2016 versus what they're saying in 2019, because uh, there are some things that don't, uh, don't mesh. Uh, the other fact is that ASI, the company that sold and distributed Fuji and the other brands, um, one of their biggest customers was Performance. And uh, what they're telling us now is that Performance owed ASI millions and millions of dollars and uh, was on the verge of closing down. 
and probably would have taken ASI down with it because they owed ASI so much money. And so ASI decided to um, buy the retailer that owed him all this money rather than uh, go down with the ship. Um, so under that scenario, if you, uh, if you buy into that, um, it kind of was just a matter of time before the whole ship went down. I think Pat Crenane said something about it. It was, it was a matter of us going bankrupt in 2016 or going bankrupt in 2018. So, so they pushed it off by a couple of years. So it sounds like then the decline of performance in some way is an indictment of performance's original business model, which was, um, you know, this vertically integrated model, um, tons of brick and mortar stores across the country and razor thin margins. Because that's the other thing, you know, when you think of performance, you just think of like lowest possible prices out there. Your type of place, Fred. Yeah, no. So, I mean, we'll get into that later. I have a ton of I have a ton, a ton of personal stories around performance bikes. I mean, you know, for all the complaining that I would hear from some some of my contacts about performance as you know a company that drove down prices and that put mom and pop bike shops out of business. Um, as a consumer, as a penniless consumer, many times um, performance definitely played a huge role in in my life as a cyclist. Like I said, in college. That was the place where I would, you know, I was in Santa Cruz, California. There were a bunch of great bike shops there, but, you know, a tube was nine bucks. And over the hill in San Jose, where there was a performance, a tube was four bucks or three bucks, depending off if there was a big sale. So I remember when I would go over the hill and stop in at the performance, I would buy, you know, 40 bucks worth of tubes because I knew... I was going to get a, a a better deal. You yeah, you tend to get flats too. Uh, you know, Steve, what um, you've been doing some recent reporting. Then, what phase are we at with this? What um, wh- where is performance and its parent companies? Where where are they at right now with the proceedings? Uh, I think things are finally settling down after a saga that began in 2016. They filed bankruptcy in, in November this year, right before Thanksgiving. At this point, we have some new owners. The deal has closed. Uh, a group called the Tiger Capital Group has bought ASI. Make sure I get that right. And um, another group called Amain, which is a California e-commerce company, has bought the Performance and Bike Nash Bar e-commerce business. And um, and they're going ahead. And they're shaking off. You know, they'll they'll be able to go free of all that debt that loaded down the company prior to the bankruptcy. So they're splitting them off, basically. So is the mail order going to be its own company, separate from these uh, bike brands going forward? Exactly. I can tell that you're uh, you're from an older generation because you still use the term mail order. Ah, I think yeah, some people don't know what true. that means. Mail order is when you used to get the catalog in the mail, yeah. and then you would call a number. <laughs> yeah. Or you would even fill out a form send with a pen and mail it back form, to them, yeah. and then they would mail you the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I first worked at Velo News, I manned the phones for Velo Gear, Ooh. our old mail order catalog that we had uh, 15 years ago. Man, some of that vintage stuff would be worth a pretty penny right now. A lot now. of like a hung on to the triple stuff, yeah. XL club cut uh, Campbell's full of beans jerseys. Yeah, the uh, the O'Grady cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can remember when Velo Gear shut down and we had a pallet load of size extra small old guys who get fat in winter cycling bibs. Yeah. Whoever ordered that pallet probably should be fired. Not quite the right, uh, yeah. yeah. Bad target audience. So that. Going, going back to where we're at right now with this situation, Steve, so 
how many people have lost their jobs in this uh, in this basically like this this gutting of performance? Well, at the time of the filing, they said they had, I think, 1,900 employees, 1,700 of which were in the brick-and-mortar retail stores. Uh, So all those 1,700 jobs are going away. Um, Many of them have already left, and uh, the remaining employees will be be gone in the coming weeks. There's still about uh, two or 300 other employees in the ASI headquarters in Philadelphia and in the... um, uh, North Carolina office. Some of those people are going to be able to keep their jobs with the with the ongoing operation. But still, somewhere around 1,700, maybe 1,800 people across the country are losing their jobs over this. Have you talked to some of these people, Steve? What are some of the stories and uh, you know human stories, personal stories that are coming out of uh, of this mass layoff? Well, I've talked to a lot of them. Uh, Thankfully, a lot of the folks that work in the bike shops have been able to move into other jobs. The nice thing about the performance stores is they tend to be in medium to large size bike markets where there's a lot of other bike stores. If you think about a performance, it's never the only bike shop in town. It's always in a town that already has another five or 10 or 30 other bike shops. So the folks are um, sending around their resumes to the other shops and most of them have been able to move into something new. Uh, The one that's really a tearjerker, frankly, is the uh, call center. If you ever did have to call Performance or Bike Nash Bar to uh, get some customer service or order something, you were probably talking to uh, a nice lady in Sophia, West Virginia, which is a town of, I believe, 1,300 people in coal mining country. And that's where the Performance Nash Bar call center had been. And they employed anywhere from 35 to 50 people over the years, manning the phones uh, 24-7, I think. And um, at the time of the closing last week, they still had about 32 employees there, all of whom were let go last Friday. And uh, I talked to a couple of the ladies there. And uh, one of the ladies, I was talking to her on Thursday, the night before the final day, and she said she had cleared off her desk of everything except for the box of tissues for the final day, hmm. which was kind of a tearjerker. That is sad. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think our, our, our hearts go out to all of those women at the call center in hopes that they can find something new. Um, unfortunately, it's a story, you know, for all, the, all of us who work in the bike industry that we, we hear from time to time with um, changes and d- dynamic changes going on in the bike industry. Uh, Steve, what about some of the people you've spoken to at the headquarters in Chapel Hill? What, uh, what has the attitude been like around there? Uh, that's a harder one. There's some people that are still applying for jobs, hoping that the new company, Amain, who uh, has purchased the e-commerce business, uh, might have a spot for them. Uh, there's but it was a big operation there. It was a warehouse. Uh, there was, you know, a big IT department there. I talked to some folks um, from that department that are going to be looking for jobs in other industries. And um, but that's that was the the homeland of performance. They started in Chapel Hill or right near there, and they had been based there as sort of a local institution for. I think close to 30 years. So it's a big hit there. It comes at a tough time also in the bike industry where I think generally things are flat to down slightly for just from my, from my sort of uh, my, my general understanding of it. Is, would you say that's true, Steve? I think so. We just saw some numbers last week uh, saying that um, in dollar sales last year, the U.S. bike industry was uh, up 
slightly, just oh. uh, I think 4%, but in the number of bikes sold was down 10%. Uh, so people are selling more expensive bikes, uh, including e-bikes, because the average price of an e-bike is around 3000 whereas the average bike price of a regular bike is well under a thousand um so there's been that that little shift there which is interesting uh there's certainly like fred was saying it's very dynamic there's things moving even if it's just moving from 27.5 mountain bikes back to 29 and regular road bikes to gravel road bikes there's a lot shifting around and there's there's a lot of there's some good news stories out there there's some companies that are thriving and growing and uh, on the other side of the coin, there's some companies that are struggling. And it seems like the, some of the some of the companies that are thriving are more of these direct consumer mail order businesses, whereas the, the traditional bike shops, I don't know. Would you say that they're in kind of a difficult position these days? A lot of them are. I think uh, the strongest ones are surviving. The strongest ones in the in the strong markets. There's still a, a role for them, but they're having to adapt rapidly. Um, and, and most of the bike shops that are doing well have a significant amount of e-commerce business on the side of their own. So it's not just that they're um, fending off the, um, the big e-commerce companies, but they're actually getting into that business on a smaller scale, mm. even if it's just to serve their local customers or serve their niche. In the, you know, in the internet world, everybody can find their niche. And if you're the guy that is the expert on selling, uh, you know, front generator hubs and lighting systems, uh, even if you're in the middle of Vermont somewhere, you can have a worldwide following for your expertise instead of having a, a little local following. So mm. pe people are adapting. So Spencer, I want us to put our heads together, close our eyes, okay. envision uh, memories we've had inside some of those performance shops. Describe for the good listeners who may be listening to this, you know, someday in the future, what a performance bicycle actually was. I'll go first. Okay. A performance bicycle was a very large, uh, generic looking bike shop located usually in a strip mall next to a Walgreens or some other drugstore adjacent to a Target. Uh, you walked in, there were bright lights everywhere. There was just a soaring um, cavernous hall with bicycles of all varieties on racks, both a rack, like a, a vertical rack, both levels one and level two, with really bright, just bright um, price tags on them. A lot of like clearance and a lot of like, you know, buy it now and uh, a lot of markdown stuff. Oh, you, you, you take a spin, take a left, go into the clothing aisle. You've seen a lot of day glow, seen a lot of bright primary colors um, of, our, of our good brand friend Nash Bar. Um, you're walking back, you're seeing a whole table maybe with stuff that was like used or like from a package that was opened and then taped back up again with <laughs> scotch tape, heavily discounted, price tags written in hand, you know, buy three, get one free. And then, yeah, you're seeing a lot of like, like tube deals, like, like buy, buy three, get one free, buy four, get one free. And, uh, you know, then there's a, a pretty small maintenance zone with some guys working on bikes. I also love that near the cash register, there was this, the, like these photos, like generic photos of people on bikes that were the same people on bikes in every store you went to, no matter which ones you went to. You're like, hey, it's that performance guy. It's consistent branding. That's yeah. true. Uh, I'm going to miss you, performance. I bought my first real road bike 
at a perform at the performance bikes here in Boulder on Arapahoe. Um, I bought it my sophomore year of college. It was subsequently stolen. Um, the gal who I bought it from, the sales clerk, worked there for many years. And even after I started working at Velo News, I would like go in there and tease her and be like, "I work for Velo News now. I work in the bike industry. You you started all of this. <laughs> you you put me down that path." Um, so I I for one, um, as much as I see this as you know. Uh, endemic of shifting dynamics in the bike industry. I'm going to miss going into the old performance bicycles. It had a very important place, I think. And, you know, like Steve's saying, people are spending more money on bikes these days. The, the average purchase price sounds like it's going up. And but performance filled an important niche of, of providing services and products to, uh, to riders who didn't really want to spend like $10,000 on the new whatever Pinarello fancy pants, blah, blah, blah bike. Well, performance, we will pour one out for you. Steve, thanks so much for coming in the podcast today. And we will catch up with you in subsequent uh, episodes about all things going on in the bike industry. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, Okay, Spencer, we're back. We uh, are going to have a fun little discussion right now about mountain biking. My favorite. Yeah, because USA Cycling this past week released the selection criteria for the 2020 Olympic mountain bike team. Basically, the criteria it will use to name people to the squad for the Olympics. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little confusing. I think it helps to discuss it rather than to read it on the page. When I first read it on the page, my eyes went crossed and, and, and I was a little confused. But I think our readers should still go to our website and read it too. Oh. Click on it a few times, yeah. share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, get it out there. Tell your friends and family. Pump those numbers up a little. Call Aunt Mabel. Tell yeah. her there's a great mountain bike story on velonews.com. But you're right though. It is a little bit hard to wrap your head around it. And of course, there's there's some history here with USA Cycling having yeah. confusing qualification requirements for the Olympics. And this goes all the way back to the, the famous off-road to Athens episode for the uh, for the Olympics in Greece back in the day when that was the 2006 games, I think, right? 2004. Oh, was it 2004? There was, they, they, they postponed the 2006 games. Okay. Yeah. But either way, it was a gr- you know, that was a great film. I suggest everyone go out and watch Off-Road to Athens, really put like the uh, American mountain bike movement in a, in a, in a nutshell on that one, but we have moved way past those qualification standards. Thankfully. That that, re- that rewarded riders for, you know, season-long performance. And now USA Cycling has switched to criteria that rewards riders based around two specific races. So without further ado, here are the qualification standards. This is what USA Cycling will use to name its male and female Olympic mountain bikers. Uh, number one. Oh, so it's a tiered system. Right. So basically. Number one's the most important. Number one through five. Trumps all of them. Trumps yeah. all of them. Yeah. And so on and so forth. All right. Number number one. Victory at the 2020 UCI World Cup opener in Nova Mesto, Czech Republic, May 24th, 2020. Number two. So, it, so before we blaze through these. Okay. So okay. That, that World Cup comes about two months before the Olympics. Yeah. 
the Olympic race. If you win that World Cup, you punch your ticket. And that makes sense because if you think about it, a mountain biker coming into peak form, riding great through the springtime, yeah, that's the one you want on your Olympic team. Not necessarily the person who's just been gathering points for the last couple of years. Number two, victory at the 2019 UCI World Championships in Mont Saint-Anne. That's way back in September 2019. Now, this is also smart because it shows you're able to really get up for a big race. World Championships, oh, biggest yeah. race of the year. And if you win it, you are uh, punching your ticket. Definitely. You want to see someone who can stand up against the world's best rider, someone like maybe Kate Courtney, who won the 2018 World Championships. All right. The third piece of criteria is, well, the, the third level of criteria is if you finish anywhere between second to eighth place at Nova Mesto. So that is at the World Cup. That 2020 so, World Cup. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, number four, you are second through eighth place at the World Championships, Mont St. Anne. Right. And fifth place, you finished top 10 overall in the 2019 World Cup ranking. So there is a consistency right. criteria there. And that's kind of your safety school, so to speak. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to have in there, I think, because... A consistent rider, you, generally, you can expect to, expect that they'll be able to turn it on, turn it on for the Olympics, and that's what we're hoping for. So the way it works is one trumps two, two trumps three, three trumps four, four trumps five. Right. Um, if you are a rider and you secure your spot through uh, the top ten overall in the 2019 World Cup rankings, and then two riders finish above you in this criteria, you're getting bumped. That's that's the interesting thing is and and Leah Davison said this very thing to me when I called her about this for for my story that I ran earlier this week, kind of a bit of an analysis story about what this what whether the riders like it, what they think about it. And Leah, of course, two time Olympian, went to London, went to Rio. She was top ten in Rio. And she said, uh well, she likes the criteria, first of all. But she said it it makes her nervous because it's going to come down to the wire. It's going to come down to that Nova Mesto World Cup in May. She's not going to be able to go into the the off season after the after the 2019 summer and say, "Okay, I'm good to go for the Olympics." She might have fulfilled one of those qualification requirements, perhaps through the World Cup standings, perhaps through the World Championships, but. You never know what's going to happen in that race in Nova Mesto come May. So, Spencer, yeah, you like you mentioned, you talked to a bunch of these riders. Uh, the feedback they had was tough but fair. Yeah. Um, these Because the criteria really prioritizes two races. There's two major races that people have to get mm -hmm. up for. Um, there is a World Cup that comes after Nova Mesto before the Olympics. However, USA Cycling f uh, felt that it was too close to the Olympics to have it factor into the criteria. The, the thought is they want to name the team um, two months out to give riders a chance to come down from that peak and build up for a second peak. And that's why they're, they're, they're just using these two races. In the past, I believe they've used three, sometimes even four races. Uh, but the real change this year is focusing it on two. So what's some of the other feedback that you got from riders about you know, these two races really being the pinnacle events? Some of the riders are definitely a little concerned about the specter of mechanicals or bad weather or crashes because you only have two chances and your odds are going to be better, of course, if you have three chances and if you have a few more 
opportunities just in case something goes wrong. So that's one thing that they expressed as a concern, but they're mountain bikers. They're used to this sort of thing. They're able to, to manage those risks, do the best they can with their equipment, get everything dialed ahead of these important races. And going back to what you were saying about that other World Cup that's coming about a month before the Olympics, that's in Andorra, which is a high altitude race, very mountainous terrain, of course. I thought it was kind of interesting that they didn't include it. And I, I asked Howard Grotz about this specifically because Grotz, known to be an excellent climber at high altitude. He lives in Durango, Colorado. He's just a teeny tiny little man. I mean, he, he just flies up these hills. He's such a great climber. And I said, hey, Howard, think about it. If you had Andorra as a chance to qualify for the Olympics, wouldn't that be better for you? Wouldn't you be able to maybe have a, have more of a chance getting into the top eight like they want you to? And he said, yeah, well, I don't think so because that race doesn't do a very good job of simulating what is expected to be the course for Tokyo. They haven't quite seen that course yet, but generally speaking, you can say it's not a high altitude course because it's just not. And then it's probably not going to have quite the same gnarly climbing that Andorra has. All the riders, Howard included, are expecting it to be a little more of a garden variety Olympic style course. Uh, that means it's going to be a little more manicured. The climbs will be a little more power climbs, a little shorter. There'll be technical rock garden features. Those will all be, of course, built uh, built by machines, built by people. They're, there's not a lot of natural terrain anymore in these Olympic courses. Uh, and for their money, the Nova Master Czech World Cup is a very good representation of that type of mountain bike course. Uh, Mont Saint Anne, a little more natural, but very difficult, and plenty of technical rock gardens and things. So, in their eyes, it's those two races are very fair races to be deciding the Olympic team. Now, the underlying um, element with both men's and women's selection is. Um, the fact that if if no one hits these qualification standards, they'll do a discretionary pick. Yep, exactly. USA Cycling often does discre discretionary picks. That's where a collection of experts and coaches names the athlete to the team. And you know, I'm sure listeners are familiar that in years past, USA Cycling has gotten into trouble with its discretionary picks due to the fact that you know some of the people who are making the picks are coaches that actually coach some of the athletes who are in contention. Now we've uh, done a lot of coverage. On on the site about how USA Cycling has restructured its athletics department in the last year and a half or so to try and eliminate some of these conflicts of interest, which you, know, you, you may say, oh, it's conflict of interest. So obvious. Duh. The hard part is that when you're talking about cycling, which is such a small insular sport and the number of people who are really experts in this field, it, you know, it's not many people. Um, conflicts of interest appear everywhere because they're just there's a limited number of athletes going for those spots and there's a limited number of coaches and people who are who are guiding them but so both men's and women's um, there's a good chance that there's going to be um, coaches decision for these spots now if we were to stop things right now and name the Olympic team right now we would be looking at two women for the American team and one man. And though the number of spots you get for the mountain bike Olympic is based off of your um, country standings based on UCI points. It's kind of an arcane system. Yeah, you have to like the wait outside years. the Vatican yeah. and look to see if it's white smoke or if it's uh, rainbow striped smoke or it, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of crazy. But basically, 
the, the each country, the riders sort of need to work together almost as a team for the 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 year in advance of the Olympic year. Two years in advance. Two years in advance. So they need to get as many UCI points as they can, get their nation in the best standing possible. And so the only the top two nations in those rankings, which will be, I think the rankings end in June, the only the top two nations will get three start spots. Uh, and then I believe it's the third place through, I think, eighth place. Uh, I'd have to double check that. Third through case, seventh. Yeah, third through seventh get two. And then after that, only one start. There's some other ways you can get starts as well based on performance at Pan American Championships or things like that. Bottom line here is that the American women are in a dogfight to get that second position in the nation rankings behind Switzerland. Switzerland's head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, they're up against, the Americans are up against Canada. They're up against the Netherlands. Hard to say if they're going to be able to get those three spots. The men, the American men, you can expect they'll only have one spot. But like you're saying, if we stop the clock right now and we're picking our Olympic team, Kate Courtney obviously gets the spot automatically due to a world championship win. She was also top 10 in the World Cup through 2018. So I think all the riders, Leah Davison included, agree that Kate Courtney's the outright favorite to be one of those women selected. Now, uh, for the second spot on the women's team, a little harder to say. That could come down to a discretionary pick because between some of the favorites, such as Chloe Woodruff, who was on the Rio Olympic team alongside Leah Davison, those riders, they haven't really met any of these qualification standards in the last year or so. Uh, that could be a discretionary pick. The men's race, I think, is going to be a discretionary pick. Unfortunately, no disrespect to Howard, who is a Rio Olympian, or to, for instance, uh, Christopher Blevins or Keegan Swenson, other up-and-comers. They, I don't think they're going to be able to meet these very high qualification standards. That's one thing that Howard mentioned to me that I found was kind of interesting, is he wishes there was perhaps one additional standard uh, to qualify for the team beyond these five that would be a little more attainable for the men because it just comes down to the discretionary and his exact words were something along the lines of you, you avoid the drama if you have a standard that you can ride to and it would be nice if there was something beyond the discretionary but he does say that riding consistently throughout the 2019 season is probably going to be one of the best ways to secure that discretionary selection. So there's historical context here. We mentioned it when we first started talking about this segment, but USA Cycling's old method for choosing the Olympic team was to send its riders on a year-long points chase for UCI points at World Cups and various races, Pan-American championships and races across the globe. And he and she who accrued the most personal points at the end of this, um, you know, the the end of this period were named to the team and that formed the backbone for off-road to Athens. And you saw this handful of riders flying all over the globe, doing world cups and smaller races and trying to earn as many UCI points as possible. Because the thinking was if we incentivize our riders to chase down their own personal points, then they're also going to accrue as many country points as possible, thus boosting the number of riders we can actually take. It was, you know, it's not a bad system. However, there was a real drawback. And that was by the time these riders spent, you know, a year and a half chasing points around the globe, by the time they got to the Olympics, they were all so burned out from this international chase that no one performed particularly well. I remember talking to riders in Beijing when they did a similar model and everyone was just super smoked 
Yeah, it's just not a good way to prepare for a target goal race of your entire career, practically. You have to structure your training in a purposeful way and allow for plenty of rest because these cross-country mountain bike races are so intense. It's just full gas. It's not like it's not like a road a road race, for instance, where you have some where you can just sit in the bunch and take it easy and really not burn all that many matches if you're simply trying to get in the miles. Well, for fans who are interested in following this chase, we're going to be covering it pretty closely starting uh, during the World Cup season. Starting now. Starting exactly right now. <laughs> no, we're going to be following it. I, I always love these chases for Olympic teams because, you know, you, the cynics might say, oh, well, you're just like feeding into the, you know, the aura of the Olympics. But for, for riders, it really means something. I mean, we've interviewed a lot of these mountain bikers over the last few years and talking about what it means to make the Olympic team and compete in the Olympics. And it is something something that really elevates cross-country mountain biking out there. And furthermore, I would argue that, especially on the women's side, this is one of our best opportunities to win a medal in a cycling discipline at the Olympics. Uh, I, I, yes, we have some great opportunities on the track. Uh, certainly the women's pursuit team has done that already, and I expect more from them. But uh, there just aren't a lot of chances for Americans to win medals in cycling events at the Olympics. But uh I especially look to Kate Courtney for being one of the one of the top riders who has a chance at it. All right, so on our long list, let's see here. This is just the Velo News impromptu long list. We obviously have Kate Courtney, definitely, Clory Woodruff, yep, Leah Davison. Going to throw Aaron Huck in there. Aaron Huck's a good pick as well. Uh, Christopher Blevins. Chris, this so Christopher Blevins is an interesting one because he's raced under twenty three up to this point, and he's going to have to race the elite field this next year in 2019 to have a shot at qualifying. And we haven't seen him do that yet. And I'll be really interested to see how he adapts to that very competitive field. Howard Grotz. Uh, who else, Spencer? Who are we missing? Yeah, we've got Howard Grotz. Uh, Keegan Swenson, very good rider. I think he maybe flies a little under the radar sometimes, but uh, I, I've seen him firsthand. I've seen him beat Howard Grotz in some pretty major races. And um, I, I, he's been he's been mixing in a lot more European racing in the last few years. I think he has a good shot at it as well. And you know, Howard also mentioned um, another kind of dark horse as as someone to watch, and that's Luke Rauenwelder, who uh, he was second to Howard Gratz at the uh, U.S. XC uh, National Championships uh, in Snowshoe West Virginia last year. Well, it's uh, you know a bunch of really good athletes out there who are going to be uh, competing for this team. I don't know. I'm, I'm compelled. I'm going to follow it. It's going to be exciting, definitely. Well, Spencer, it was another great episode of the Vela News Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to our other guest, Steve Frothingham. Again, we plan to have him on. And as always, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelaNews.com. Subscribe to the Vela News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Vela News on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews magazine and follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash velonews the velonews podcast is produced by velonews which is owned by pocket outdoor media the thoughts and opinions expressed on the velonews podcast are those of the individual and as always we leave you with the brooklyn boogaloo blowout playing the bernard purdy classic soul drums 